Thanks, Lance. Like he said, my name is Brent. I'm a pastoral assistant here at Four Oaks. I'm excited this morning to get to consider scripture with you guys. I don't think it's been said yet, but happy 4th of July. We're thankful that you guys are here, that you would take time to come and consider the Bible with us. We believe that the Bible is true, that it changes us when we understand it and when we believe it and when we take time to consider it. So it's my joy and my privilege to get to spend time with you guys doing that this morning. This summer, we've been going through a series on the fruit of the Spirit. We've been asking questions like, what kinds of things should characterize our lives because we're Christians? What should our lives look like because the Spirit of the living God is at work within us and moving in us and changing us and shaping us? A few weeks ago, we looked at Galatians chapter 5, and we talked about walking by and living by the Spirit, and that there are certain things that manifest themselves in our lives, the fruit of the Spirit. And since then, we've been taking time to look at what each fruit means more clearly in our lives. So today, it's my privilege to be discussing joy with you guys. And I think whenever we hear that we're going to be discussing joy, there's almost a little internal groaning that we experience sometimes, a little wince that we feel. We think things like, I know, I know, I just need to be happier. I need to be more joyful. That thing going on really isn't that bad. I can just pray about it more and I'll chirp up and get through it. But I think we only feel that way because we think about joy in terms of feeling happy about a circumstance. As if somehow having the joy of the Lord is just going to magically make us emotionally invincible against everything that we experience, and that we can just be so happy in a world that's just so hard. I think that's because that's what we all want. We all want things that will make us happy. We don't want to experience sadness, and there are things that we go to to fill up our joy tanks like gas in a car tank. And we go to them again and again, and we all have joy gas stations that we go to. It could be social media, or it could be some habit that you go to, because when we go to it and when we're on it, we feel happy enough to get through whatever's in front of us. It numbs us enough to get us through whatever's going, through, whatever's going on in our life and get through it. But what if biblical joy was different? What if biblical joy could offer something in our lives that we could count on never running out, unlike gas in a car tank? Biblical joy is more than just a mere feeling that helps us get through life. My hope is that by the end of our time considering scripture together, we'll see that because God is fully sovereign, we have access to the fullness of joy. In a moment, we'll be discussing this by looking at John chapter 15, and in the spirit of alliteration, we'll be discussing how joy grows in our life as God plants joy in us, as God prunes joy in us, and as God produces joy in us. As you're opening up to John chapter 15, Let's take some time to figure out where we are in the narrative of the Bible and figure out what's going on. If you don't have your Bible, the verses will be up on the screen for you to follow alongside, follow along with us. John is a gospel in the New Testament. It records the life and the ministry of Jesus. And John chapter 15 is one of the chapters in the Bible that records the last teaching that Jesus would give his disciples before he would be crucified. Jesus and the disciples are in the upper room of a house. They've just shared the Passover dinner together. And Jesus has started teaching them. He started washing their feet, and he tells them about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And it's important that they know these things because they're going to need this teaching and encouragement to help them get through what they're about to face, namely watching Jesus die and be crucified and the subsequent persecution that they would face when they proclaim his resurrection. So Jesus has just washed their feet. He's just told them about the coming of the Holy Spirit, and now he promises them, he promises them something more. He promises them joy. So let's pick up in verse 1 
And after we're done reading, I'll pray for our time together. This is John chapter 15, starting in verse 1. This is God's word. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I'm going to pray for us and then we'll hop right in. Father God, we're thankful that we have your word. We're thankful that we can know you through your word. God, that you would teach us through your word, that you would show us who you are in your word. Father, I pray that as we take time studying the scriptures that your Holy Spirit would make it clear. Would the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight? God, by the end, would we be people who have a clear understanding of what your joy is? And would you work that out in our lives? We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. We'll start by talking about how God, as a sovereign ruler, plants joy in us. One of my favorite lessons that I got to learn in elementary school in my science class taught us how a plant keeps itself alive. Our teacher took a stalk of celery and stuck it in a glass of water and then put red food coloring in the water. And over the course of the next couple of days, we got to watch as the stalk of celery from the bottom sucked up the water and we got to watch the red water move all the way up the stalk of celery until it got to the leaves and it turned the leaves red. And what our teacher was trying to show us was that the branches, the leaves at the end of the stalk, get their life from the stalk. That's where the nutrients and the life moves through. And Jesus is telling us the same thing here. Look back at verses four through six. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. What Jesus is communicating to the disciples here is that their whole lives, their ministries, everything that they do from the moment that they wake up to the moment that they go to bed is wholly dependent on him. He's the one who gives them life. And we find ourselves in the same position that the disciples are in. We are wholly dependent on Jesus for our life. Jesus gives us eternal life. That's what it means in Romans 6.23 when it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that initial joy that we experience should radically change us. And one of the ways that it should change us is in producing a hope in us. The joy that God plants in us takes its root in hope. Hope looks at something in the past to anchor an expectation for the future. 
And when our hope is set on a reconciled relationship with God through Christ, and that we can spend an eternity with him, we find a deep and lasting hope, an eternal hope that produces an eternal joy. So when life assails us with hardships, with illnesses, and with death, and with car accidents, and with frustrating relationships, and when work is hard, we can turn to the Spirit of God who lives in us and pray that he would remind us of our hope and give us joy. We see this, the joy of salvation, as a theme throughout all of Scripture. One place that it's really clear is in Psalm 51. Here, David is crying out to God in desperation, and he says, Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. This gives us insight that there's a very real joy that comes from thinking about and meditating on and believing in our salvation. That eternal joy that we experience isn't to the exclusion of recognizing the fact that we live in a fallen world, but the eternal joy planted within us by the Spirit of God when we have faith in Him has implications for how we should handle the hardships of life. One place in Scripture we see this is at the end of Habakkuk chapter 3. In his lifetime, Habakkuk was a prophet in Judah, and he would take his post on the watchtower, and he would look out into the distance, and he would see the Babylonian army slowly marching in, ready to crush all of Jerusalem, wiping out his countrymen. And at the end of Habakkuk, he prays, and this is the very end of his prayer, at the end of Habakkuk chapter 3. He says, I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me, yet I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon those who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Do you see how Habakkuk handles the impending doom in his life? When everything around him is falling apart, he remembers that God is a God who saves. He's the God of salvation. And because God saves, he has hope. And because he has hope, he can rejoice and take joy in God. The hope that we experience should well up in us into prayer. In the midst of temporal hardship, when we have eternal joy in our eternal life, we should be moved to pray. Look back at the passage in John, in chapter 7, or in verse 7, it says, when you abide, uh, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. God is inviting us into prayer. Real, honest, vulnerable hopeful prayer. Prayer that thanks God for working out our salvation. Prayer that remembers that we can have relationship with our creator and the forgiveness of our sins through Christ. That's how Habakkuk prayed. First, he told God exactly how he felt. He said, God, I'm scared. My, my lips tremble. I feel like I'm dying and rottenness is entering into my bones. I feel like my legs can't carry me another step. And he told God what he saw around him. God, the fields are failing. God, there's no livestock in the stalls. We have no food. We're going to die. And then, what does he do? He declares that he will take hope in the God of his salvation, that God saves. 
God wants to hear about the hard things in our life. God doesn't want us to sugarcoat our prayers. God doesn't want some false sense of stoicism that says, I'm unaffected by everything that's going on in my life. No, that's not what joy produces. Joy should move us to real, honest, vulnerable, hopeful prayer. When we're tempted to despair, we can pray that God would restore to us the joy of our salvation and remember that God is a God who saves. I think the longer that we're walking with God and the longer that we're Christians, this truth becomes harder and harder to remember or it grows old or cold or stale. I think, I know, I know God saved me, but... But I think the opposite should be true, that we should think more and more about our salvation, that every single day we should live in and dwell in and rejoice in the love that God has shown us through the forgiveness of our sins in Jesus. And verse 9 in John describes the love that Jesus has for us very clearly. Jesus says the only way that he could compare the love that he's shown the disciples through his death and resurrection on the cross is to compare it to the love that God the Father has for God the Son. It's pre-existent, it's eternal, it's never-ending, it's perfect, it's complete, it's satisfying. That's the love that Jesus has for us and that we should think about as we consider our salvation. We should think about our salvation more and more because it's our salvation that gives us an eternal joy. I want to take a moment and pause here and make a note of the fact that the path to joy doesn't go any further if you're not in Christ. If you want to experience the eternal hope and the eternal joy that we have in our salvation, we must be found in Christ. So I would say to you that if you're listening and, and you want to experience the joy of salvation, to take time to consider the love of God demonstrated in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Consider what Jesus' death and resurrection means to you and how you engage with that belief in your life. That's the initial joy planted in us by God. And once that seed of joy is planted, it begins to grow. And once something begins to grow, there's some pruning that needs to be done. Any good gardener knows that as a plant grows, in order to make sure that it's healthy and taken care of, it has to be pruned. And we aren't any different. Look back at the passage at verses 1 to 3. It says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Here, Jesus is demonstrating that as branches attached to the vine, we are subject to the care of the vine dresser. A vine dresser in ancient Israel wasn't like a regular farmer. A regular farmer would plant their crops, they would grow for a season, they would harvest them, the rest would die, he would clear out the fields, plant another one, and this would go on throughout the year. But that's not what a vine dresser would experience. A vine dresser, someone who would take care of vines, would care for his vines for a really, really long time. There are some grapevines that, if cared for properly, can live for up to 30 years. That means that the vine dresser is very well acquainted with the vines in his field. He remembers them. He knows exactly what they need. Year in and year out, he takes care of them. And in this passage, Jesus explains exactly how the Father is caring for the branches of his vine. Look at verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Jesus is saying that there are parts of the branches that will be cut away by the Father. And the Father is totally within his right to be doing so. It's here that we engage with the godness of God. 
the authority that he has in our life, the fact that he's God and we are not. When you prune a plant, you take things away from it because you know that's what the plant needs to be taken care of. And as we, in Christ, are attached to the vine, we find that there are certain things in our life that no longer have a place, things that need to be removed. And there are two ways, principally, that God does this. If you look at verse 2, it says that either when a branch isn't producing fruit, it's taken away, or when a branch is producing fruit, it's pruned. There are two kinds of care, pruning that takes away and pruning that bears more fruit. Sometimes when we're being pruned by God, it's because there are things in our life that are dead and unproductive, and they need to be taken away. There can be small things in our life that need to be pruned out, because you can prune a bonsai tree and use tiny little scissors and cut off parts of leaves. Or other times, there are big things in our life that need to be pruned out, because you can prune an oak tree, and you use pruning shears, or sometimes even a chainsaw to get through some stuff. And there are big things in our life that need to get pruned out. And God has the authority to prune anything out of any area in our life. That's what it means to be the vine dresser, that he can go among his field and he can look out and survey exactly what needs to be taken out from each vine so it's cared for well. God has authority in any area of our life, but here's a number of them to consider. That God could be pruning our relationships, or our ambition, or our finances, or our satisfaction, or our entertainment, or our identity. I want to say plainly that when God chooses to prune by taking away that we could never fully understand why he's doing what he's doing. How could we possibly know the mind of God? How could a vine ever know exactly what the vine dresser is doing? But God isn't just pruning for the sake of taking things away, even though sometimes it can hurt and be jarring. God isn't just aimlessly taking things out of our lives. Psalm 84.11 gives us a hope and an assurance that this isn't what God is doing. It says, The Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. When God chooses to prune by taking away, he isn't withholding any good thing from us. Do we really believe that? That God is a good vine dresser? That God knows how to take care of us. That God knows what we need and remembers us and knows us. It can be challenging to believe at times, but I think that's what it means to live under the lordship and under the care of the vine dresser. There's another reason that we're pruned. If you look in verse 2, it says that sometimes we're pruned in order that we might bear more fruit. Sometimes there are good and generally healthy things in our lives that need to be reshaped and pruned so that they can bear more fruit. Have you ever seen the suckers on an oak tree? There are these really weird spindly growths that come out of the middle of a healthy branch. When I was growing up, my dad would put me up on a ladder and have me go cut them off. And he taught me that it's because the suckers not only make the tree not look like the tree it's supposed to look like, but also because the suckers are stealing the nutrients from the growth at the end of the tree where all the branches are, the healthy growth. It's almost like the suckers are intercepting things that, and nutrients that aren't quite killing the growth, but they're stunting it. And they're keeping the tree from producing as much fruit as it could. And when they're cut off, the branch becomes healthier and can bear more fruit. There are a variety of ways this can look in our lives. Maybe our faith is being pruned by seasons of questions where we wrestle with who God is that ultimately will move us to love God more and have a bolder confidence in our faith. Or maybe 
we're being pruned in our marriage, and we're pruned in a season of frustration where it just seems like we can't figure out or communicate well with our spouse. But on the other side, we'll be moved and pruned to be more loving towards them, more sacrificial, more compassionate. Our faith and our marriage are good things that bear good fruit in us, but they need to be pruned. And when you prune something, you're doing so so that it has the right shape. And in the Bible, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, we know what that picture is. It says that we're being formed from one degree of glory to another into the image of Jesus. God is pruning us to look more and more and more like Jesus. Ultimately, God is pruning us for our own good, even though sometimes it can hurt. I imagine that if a plant could talk while it was being pruned, it would probably tell us how much it hurts. And there are things that we don't want pruned, ways that we don't want to be pruned in. We say, no, God, not that one thing, or no, God, I don't want to be pruned this way. That hurts. That's too much. But God isn't pruning things out that bring us true joy. God doesn't want us to take satisfaction and happiness and go back to our joy gas stations for things that are just cheap imitations and mimicry of the true joy that he gives us. The temporal satisfaction and happiness we experience from our sin cannot compare with the true joy that we receive from Jesus. And God delights in us experiencing his joy. God isn't just pruning because one day he woke up and said, I'm in a pruning mood today and I want to see how much I can take away and prune out. No, God wants us to bear fruit. Look at verse 11. It says, I say these things to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. God wants us to bear fruit. God wants us to be joyful. Everything that Jesus has said to the disciples up to this point is so that they can experience the joy of the Lord. And it's here that we find that God produces joy in our lives. God has planted the initial joy of salvation in our hearts. He then prunes our lives so that we aren't being killed by things that are taking life and joy from us, and then he produces joy. God wants us to experience his joy. That's why verse 11 says that my joy may be in you. Not joy because of God, not joy from God, but the actual joy of God. So when Jesus says that he wants to give us his joy, we would be prudent and we ought to understand exactly what that joy is. I think Hebrews 12 verses 1 and 2 do a really good job of explaining what Jesus' joy was. And the writer of Hebrews up to this point has just finished explaining the life of Old Testament heroes by faith. And then he transitions into this at the beginning of, verse, uh, in the beginning of chapter 12 in verse 1. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy of that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured the cross for the promise of joy, the promise of unity with the Father, to be with him at his right hand. Jesus was obedient in order to find that joy. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's through obedience that we find relationship with God, and it's there that we find joy with God. We see that joy and obedience are closely linked in John 15. Look back at the passage at verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, 
just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. The way to experience the love of the Lord, which produces His joy, is in abiding obedience. The word abide, which Jesus says over and over and over and over again in this passage, that Greek word meno simply means to remain as one or to continue. Jesus is inviting us to abide with him. He's inviting us to remain with him, to stay with him. I think we get a really good picture of what this looks like in marriage. When you get married, you have a wedding and a big celebration and a big public profession of fidelity and love towards one another. But it isn't specifically that wedding day that fosters the intimacy that is the joy of marriage and where we find the gifts of marriage. It's in the day-in and day-out decision to love your spouse, to sacrifice for your spouse, to die to yourself for your spouse, that builds the intimacy that is the gift of marriage. And that's what our abiding with Jesus is like. It's the day-in and day-out decision to remain as one with Jesus, to be obedient to him, to demonstrate our love for him. That's how we have relationship with Jesus. In verse 4, Jesus tells us to abide, and the verb tense here indicates to us that that's a command. And Jesus wouldn't have to command us to remain with him, to stay with him and abide with him so much if he knew that that was our natural inclination. But that's not our natural inclination. I love that we even have hymns that say, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And don't we? Fortunately, Jesus gives us the key here to abiding. Look back at the passage at verse 7. It says that, If you abide in me and my words abide in you. Jesus is inviting us to abide in his word. It's the word of God that teaches us how to be obedient. If you've ever wanted to know what God's will for your life is and how to be obedient and how to remain with God, then you can open your Bible and read it and study it and learn it. That's the key to abiding. If we want to abide with the Lord and experience his joy, then we must be obedient to the word. And to be obedient to the word, we have to know his word, which means that we actually read it and think about it and talk about it with one another. And could you imagine what it would be like if we talked about the Bible with each other more? I mean, it's exciting to think about what it would look like if the word of God dwelt richly among us. Because if we were a people who lived out the joy of the Lord in abiding obedience, then we would see the full outworking of joy. The full outworking of joy is to rejoice. It's to praise God. The word rejoice has joy stuck right in the middle of it. And that's not just a coincidence in English. In Hebrew and in Greek, The words for joy and rejoice are often so similar that they can be translated almost the exact same way. The full outworking of joy is the glorification and the praise of God. Look back at verse 8. That's why it says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. When we receive the joy of the Lord, it should well up in us into praising God that glorifies him. It doesn't just sit stagnant within us. It's not just something that numbs us long enough to get through this season of life. It's not just something that helps us feel better whenever we're down. It's an outward expression. And there are plenty of psalms that describe this, but I think one that does so really poignantly is Psalm 149. It says, Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. 
Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Do you get the picture here? There's a mutual enjoyment between God and his people when we experience joy. There's an unbridled happiness that wells up within us that we just can't help but sing and dance and share with others when we experience the joy of the Lord. The heart that's filled with the joy of the Lord isn't quiet, it doesn't sit still, it doesn't just weather the storm, it rejoices. It shares with others about who God is and what he's done. And if joy is a fruit, fruit has seeds in it that help it reproduce. And when we rejoice, the outworking of joy, we're reproducing more joy. The more that we spend time glorifying God, the more time that we spend telling others about who he is, produces more joy in our lives. That's what it means that joy is a fruit that we experience from abiding in obedience with Jesus. Let's be people who experience that joy. First, the eternal joy that's planted in our hearts through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Let's experience the joy that moves us to praise God right now. Let's lay hold of this joy through fervent prayer, prayer that's answered through pruning in our lives and believing that God will meet us where we're at. And let's be people who can't help but praise God because of the joy that we experience that he so graciously gives us. Let's pray that God, by his spirit, would help us do this. Father, thank you that you are a good father who gives good gifts. God, you give us your joy through obedience. Lord, when we're tempted to despair, I pray that you would help us to remember that you care for us, that you are a God who saves. God, would you help us to be obedient in times where we don't know what to do or times where we know what the right thing is, but it's hard. Would you help us to be obedient? God, would you continue to help us to consider your love for us that you demonstrated in the death and resurrection of your son. Thank you for working out our salvation. Thank you that we have a hope of relationship with you, that nothing in this life can shake us so much that we're separated from your love, that there is neither height nor depth nor rulers nor powers nor principalities nor anything in all of creation that can separate us from your love. Lord, would we believe that? God, help us by your spirit to do this. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.